Stanford University. Um, I just want to say good morning. I am, for those of you who don't know me, Susan O'Hara, and I am the executive director for the Center to Support Excellence in Teaching here at Stanford University. Uh, and on behalf of myself and Pam Grossman, our faculty director, we really want to give you a warm welcome and thank you all for coming here this morning to spend this day with us. Uh, we're really excited about today and there are three main reasons really for our excitement or why, for why this day is especially important to those of us involved with the center. The first reason is we're delighted about the structure of the day. We're very excited to have brought 18 renowned speakers here today to share their knowledge and expertise with us and allow us having, to have some time for some dialogue around this important issue of teaching English learners. So I want to thank all of the presenters for coming here today and being with us. The second reason why we're so delighted is because we were so pleased with the interest that this conference generated. I started this job as executive director in July of 2009. Um, and I was very delighted when I interviewed because one of the main uh, focus of work for CSET is around supporting teachers for teaching English learners, which has been a center to my own research for the last 15 years. So it was one of the main reasons I was so excited about taking this job. Um, we, when Pam and I sat down to plan the conference, we decided that this should be the focus for our first conference because of the fact that this is an urgent issue, but also because we really wanted to make a statement about the fact that this is really a priority for CSET and we're making it central to the work that we do. We sat and planned and we had a vision that we might bring together 100 educators and that we would have some time to sit together, share expertise, dialogue. I think in less than two weeks, and Lauren can correct me if I'm wrong, we had over 200 people who had expressed interest in being here. And it grew and it grew. And we said, well, how big is the space for the breakout rooms? And they said, well, you could probably accommodate 240. So we said, OK, that's what we'll do. And we expanded to 240. As of yesterday, we had 240 people registered and close to 300 people on our waiting list. So yeah, thank you. So we are very excited. Um, I had someone call me last night to say, if a spot opens up in the morning, could you call me? Because I really want to come, and I'll be there. So I said, you know, I think you can come. It's OK. So and then the last but not least reason why we are so excited about today is this is the launch conference for CSET. And it's an exciting day for all of us who've been involved in the work of the center and its evolution over the past few years. So we are very excited and I want to take a few moments before we move forward with the agenda of the day to thank and acknowledge some of the people who've been really central to the success of the center. I want to start by thanking Stanford University and President Hennessy for their commitment to K-12 education and for their determination to make improving K-12 education a priority at the university. 
uh, level. CSET is a center that grew out of what is called the K-12 initiative, which is an initiative on improving K-12 education. Um, and the initiative has been led by a team. We have two faculty directors of the K-12 initiative, Kenji Hakuda and Helen Quinn. We have an executive director, Mary Kiley, a director of development, Heather Triple, and together that team with our Dean of Education, Deborah Stipek, have been the driving force in really getting us to where we are today and helping us to establish the center. So we want to thank them. We also have many members of our K-12 Advisory Council and the School of Education Advisory Council, as well as our own center's advisory board. And the dedication and commitment of these folks as we've worked through building the center, their input, their feedback, and their passion for the work that we're doing has been very central to our success. So we also want to thank them. And a special thanks to the generous support from our donors, because as we all know, without those resources, this kind of work is just not possible. So we want to extend a warm thanks to those folks. And then finally, I just want to acknowledge those who are part of the CSET team for the center itself. One of the most exciting moments in my life was when Pam Grossman called me to say, would you come and interview for this position? I have known Pam's work since I did my own dissertation. I have followed her work closely. I have always held her in such high regard. Uh, as you all know, she does exemplary, excellent work. And so I was delighted that she was the faculty director and that I would have the opportunity to work with her. And as faculty director, she has set a high vision and agenda for our center. And it really is her vision that shapes everything that we do. And it is based on her years of work, um, a broad area of work, working on te supporting teachers and understanding aspects of teaching. So I just want to thank her for her leadership. I also want to thank some of our more uh, senior staff that work in the center. Betty Atkenstein, who came to us more recently, who uh, many of you may know from her work with the uh, UC, UC Santa Cruz Center, New Teacher Center. Betty is a senior researcher who is working for us uh, on doing research in our induction program. I want to thank Cami Wong, who's our director of technology and digital media who you will see today going around with her camera, who's also responsible for helping us with all our tech needs. And Laurie Stapleton, who is the director of our induction program, whose leadership has really helped move the induction program forward. So I want to thank all of those folks for the work they do. I want to thank the newest members of our staff, Kimberly and Diana. They came on a few weeks ago and plunged right in to making this day possible, and it took a lot of work hours. Um, and I want to thank the many volunteers that are here today. Um, and last, but by no means least, this day would not have been possible without Lauren Smith. Thank you. 
I was going to say that without Lauren, we wouldn't have been here. Although we may have been, but we wouldn't have had food, chairs, tables, folders, computers. <laughs> Lauren has worked endless hours, and she has just been um, a godsend to me and to the whole center and the work that she does. So I really want to thank her. So again, we're just excited. This is CSET's first conference. It's great to be up here and be able to share with you all the crazy work and amazing work that we've been doing over the last year. And I'm going to turn it over to Pam Grossman, who is going to give you a little bit about the context of the center. Thank you. couldn't thank herself. So I want to take a minute and just thank Susan for all of her work on this conference. As she mentioned, she joined CSET as the executive director less than a year ago. And in the past nine months, she's done more than I would have thought is humanly possible um, to make this center a reality. Um, this conference and bringing it to fruition represents not just CSET's vision, but Susan's vision as well her commitment to supporting teachers of English learners, and her incredibly hard work. I thank my lucky stars every day that Susan said yes <laughs> to coming, and just want to take a moment to thank her. So I'm thrilled to welcome you today to this conference. Um, as Susan mentioned, it's been a dream of ours um, to create this kind of opportunity to launch CSET around the issues of supporting um, the teaching of English learners. I can't tell you how exciting it is to actually see all of you here um, and to see the kind of interest there is in this topic. My job right now is to tell you a little bit about CSET more generally, how we came to be, and what our mission and goals are. So as Susan mentioned, this all began with the Stanford Challenge, uh, which is a large Stanford um, initiative. And President Hennessy had the idea that the university should start focusing on big multidisciplinary problems that require interdisciplinary expertise. And you know, Stanford doesn't do anything you know, small, so they focused on things like war and peace, um, health, uh, the environment and sustainability. And when President Hennessy went out to talk to people, the alumni said, but wait a minute, there's a big multidisciplinary problem that we really care about that's not on your list, and that's K-12 education. What's Stanford doing to help K-12 education? And that was the launch of the K-12 initiative. Um, under that initiative, there are now three centers the Center for um, Educational Policy Analysis, CEPA, a Center for Educational Leadership, and uh, CSET. Because we see these three areas, policy, leadership, and teaching, as crucial to the reform and support of K-12 education. There we go. Uh, the mission of CSET in particularly is to focus on the design, development, and research activities that support the quality of K-12 classroom teaching and lead to significant gains on student learning. We know, we know now and we have good research 
that suggests that outside of things that we can't control, like poverty and social economic status, teachers make the biggest difference in student achievement. But if teachers are going to continue supporting students to learn at high levels, someone needs to support the teachers to continue learning throughout their career. Teaching is always changing. The, the content uh, standards change. The students change. And students need, uh, teachers need offer opportunities throughout their lives to continue to develop their own learning. So for our particular center, it's not working too well, there we go. Part of what we want to grow CSET into is an organization that's a leader in the quest to improve the quality of instruction. And we're really focused here on teaching, improving the quality of teaching, not just finding different teachers or recruiting different people in, but building the skills and capacities of the teachers that are in our classrooms and supporting them from induction through the end of their careers. Secondly, we want to um, sort of launch our spot in this area of content-rich, content-specific professional development. Partly because we're drawing on the resources of Stanford University as whole, we want to focus on those content areas in which Stanford has great expertise. Um, and right now, those are areas in science, in math, and in the humanities that we're specifically focusing on. So we can get this down. And finally, we want to, as Susan said, put at the center of this, developing models of professional development across those content areas, across all of our programs, that particularly target the support of teachers to teach English learners. So that's our vision. There we go. Um, the goals are really very connected to that particular is to really try to draw, as I said, on the expertise of faculty across the entire university and support teachers with subject-specific mentoring from induction throughout their career. One of the reasons that we're interested in focusing um, on the issue of uh, English learners actually relates to my own experience as an English methods teacher. So I teach in Stanford's teacher education program. I teach the people who want to be English teachers. And very shortly after I arrived here, I realized we needed to be doing much more in our methods class to help new teachers learn to teach English language learners well. And that there were relatively few opportunities for me as a teacher educator to learn how to do that work well. So again, part of our idea for this conference is to provide those kind of opportunities for learning and dialogue across teachers, administrators, teacher educators, policymakers around these issues. And this forum represents a beginning effort in that particular domain. We run lots of different programs for teachers, and we have um, brochures that you can see some of those. We have summer programs at Arts and the Humanities. We're developing a new program for middle school math. Uh, we're developing another program led by Jonathan Osborne on science. Um, but we also have a research agenda that is absolutely central to everything we do. And again, part of it is the underlying logic of the goals of this center. First of all, how do we identify the instructional practices in these different subject areas and for English learners that will support student achievement? 
Once we've identified those practices, and that involves developing tools, measures of effective teaching, doing a lot of research to identify those practices. The second question really is what kind of knowledge do teachers, administrators, leaders need in order to enact those practices at a high level of skill? And then what kinds of support and professional development models can be used to develop that kind of knowledge and skills and teaching? So this, uh, this set of interrelated questions drives the research agenda for CSET. And you can see under these arrows the kinds of activities we're involved in. In addition to planning conferences and running programs, um, we've been writing a lot of proposals. I think we've written, what, eight? In the, last, in the last couple of months, in part to support this research agenda that will underlie everything we do and then become the basis for our further programs. We'll come back to this um, graphic at the end of the day to weave what you're learning about today around these questions and how the conference today fits into the larger agenda. So that's a little bit about uh, CSET. Now I want to take a minute to introduce our keynote speaker. So it is my very great pleasure to introduce my friend and colleague, Chris Gutierrez. Chris is already well known to you through her work and writing. She's currently the professor and the first provost chair in the School of Education at the University of Colorado. She came there from UCLA. Professor Gutierrez is a national leader in uh, education urban education in particular, and around these issues of teaching English language learners. She served on President Obama's uh, education policy and transition team following his election, and has really been influencing policy in this area. Throughout her career, she's been fascinated by cultural aspects of teaching, focusing specific, specifically on literacy learning in formal and informal settings. Chris has run a migrant education program, after-school computer clubs. Again, when you look at Chris's uh, vita, you think, how is it humanly possible for somebody to have done all of the things that she's done? A central component of her work has focused on the teaching and learning of English learners, which is, of course, why she's here with us today. She was recently elected president of the National Conference on Research and Language and Literacy and will take on the presidency of the American Educational Research Association in just a few weeks, right? <laughs> but in addition to her illustrious professional record, you should know a little bit more about Chris. Chris is a warm and generous mentor to her students. She and I spent some time together up at the Center for the Advancement uh, of research in the social and behavioral sciences, and Chris was constantly being swarmed by her students who would fly up to spend time with her, and our students at Stanford found her out as well. So I got to see Chris's mentoring in action. She's also a devoted grandmother who practices what she preaches by reading as often as, as again, humanly possible to her granddaughter, uh, a dynamite salsa dancer, and a great friend. <laughs> We're thrilled to have her with, her with us today to open this conference. So let's give a warm welcome to Chris Gutierrez. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Yes. I didn't know they were going to let me have an announcement of Akita, my granddaughter, but there she is. 
very literate, and she's not two years old, so I have to give her a plug. Well, first let me say uh, what a wonderful opportunity um, it is to be able to be part of such an important um, jumping, a launching activity here at the center. And if you know Pam, like I do, you know why you can never say no to her. Now, I had the opportunity to spend a wonderful heavenly year at the Center for Advanced Studies and live here in Palo Alto, and which Pam and Linda and a whole host of us um, just lived together for the whole year. And part of Pam's duty, which she said was, as part of this group of friends, was to make sure I said no to everything because uh, my health was at risk. And yet, Pam's the one who called me to see if I wanted to be president of AERA and run for it, and now she has me here. So Pam is uh, intimately implicated in all I do. Um, but thank you for the opportunity to be here, and thank you for the wonderful staff uh, who've really made this possible. I also want to just acknowledge there are other people here who have been central to this whole activity and who I think uh, in this work that I'm going to talk about and uh, and in the center have really contributed tremendously to our understanding of English learners. And one of them is your own infamous, famous Kenji Hakuda, who's here. I want to acknowledge Kenji for several reasons. Um, I, when Pam told me to do this, she said, don't do policy. As you know, I have been intimately involved with policy before, but certainly now at the federal level, after I worked with Linda as part of President Obama's transition team. And we've really been working hard to continue influence. When I was part of the transition team and Linda invited me, she says, come help us with English learners. But then, there had, then all of a sudden someone had to do literacy. So that was Chris. And then someone had to do migrants. And so I ended up having a huge portfolio. Um, and so I've had a wonderful opportunity to continue that work and while I'm not going to talk about it directly today, I did put, uh, I did send the latest recommendations that really have emerged from a team that Kenji has been leading of wonderful, is it doing something that I didn't do? Okay. Um, I, I, of a wonderful uh, consortium of, of English learner researchers. Some of, the, uh, uh, some of the most substantive work has been generated by this collection of scholars. And these policies that you have in there um, really are aligning very nicely with the ways we are influencing the, fe uh, the federal uh, administration to think about. And we've shared it with many, many school districts and administrators, and they have already begun to tell us how useful these recommendations are. So again, I want to acknowledge Kenji for his leadership um, in helping us uh, really put together, I think, some very forward-thinking ways of thinking about a new agenda for English learners at the federal level and at the state and local levels as well. I also have to, and I get the prerogative as being the incoming AERA president, to make this little plug. One of our most honored lectures in AERA is the Brown Lecture. And it uh, takes place in October. And for that particular lecture, we work hard, the committee, to select just the preeminent scholars whose body of work really has contributed to equity, robust research, and learning. And I'm just delighted to say that this year's Brown Lecture awardee is Kenji Hakuda. <clears throat> So thank you. 
And my last shameless plug is for next year's convention, 2008, Eight Yari will be in New Orleans, and that will be my convention. And I think the title, the theme that I've selected, really fits with the mission of what Pam laid out. My theme is Inciting the Social Imagination, Education Research for the Public Good. And I think that's what your center is, Pam, is really promoting the best research, but research that has a consequence for people that matter and the communities. So thank you again for this opportunity. Um, and what I'd like to do today is to really, fo well, let me start while they figure this out. Um, as I said, I'm not gonna be looking at policy, but my, a lot of my life has been devoted to um, designing robust environments in which kids can be smart. In particular, children from what I call non-dominant communities, including English learners. And for the last 21 years, my life has really been involved in um, theorizing, researching, and designing these environments, such as the after-school computed, computed mediated learning club um, that I've had for now 15 years, as well as um, the one Pam mentioned, the migrant farm worker program for high school students from migrant farm worker backgrounds. So I'm gonna draw on that, um, really as uh, that work that undergirds my remarks today. I call those that work, those designs, social design experiments. Many of you are familiar with the concept design experiments. Mine is challenging that notion of design experiments because usually those are unidirectional. We bring our expertise and we plop it onto a community. My work is about social design experiments that are, that is experiments that are situated in communities that are historical, not ahistorical. And that means they really attend to the local needs of the community. Um, and that's a whole other body of work that I'm not gonna talk about, but I did put an article in your packet about social design experiments. And we're happy to say that that little article got the inaugural award for Division K this year for teacher preparation. So what I wanna talk about today are who are dual language learners and to ground that understanding, okay, something is happening with this. Should I stop or continue? It was working perfectly before. Um, I want to connect that to a robust notion of, of a science of learning. If we're gonna get to the kind of instruction and the kind of teacher preparation that we want from English learners, we need to rethink the science of learning that currently exists. And that science of learning needs to be organized around robust principles of teaching and learning. There it is. And so I have some, we'll see how long it takes. You know, this is what we know, if you come from a social cultural or cultural historical approach, you, you study about tools. And you know that tools have this dual-sided nature. They're always enabling and constraining. Right? So what we have at work here is to show how technology, the tool of technology, is always enabling and constraining at the same time. I want to begin my remarks by taking you back to the very first five minutes of my teaching career. I was prepared as an English and reading teacher. At 20 years old, I was assigned to an urban high school that was populated by Latino and African American children. And you know the formula, the youngest least experienced gets assigned to those students who most deeply 
hate reading and writing, right? And that was my assignment. I began my career by doing the absolutely worst thing one can do in trying to engender literacy development in my students. I called on a student to read aloud. Now, we all know about reading aloud, that if one is, is reading aloud, one is not attending to comprehension, to meaning-making. One is attending to the performance of that. And if you were like me, you know, one of these little overachievers, you were practicing your paragraph and your sentence before the teacher ever got to you, right? So it would be perfect. So nevertheless, in those five first, first five minutes of my career, I called on Bonita. I will never forget her name. I said, Bonita, would you please read? And she says, hell no, I ain't going to read. Well, I had felt very prepared for my teaching career, but no one had prepared me for this. But even at that young age, even though I didn't have the theoretical and pedagogical tools to really interrogate that moment, I did know that teaching was not about a struggle for power in the classroom. I did know that, teach, that, that my role was to promote learning. So in that moment, rather than challenging her, I gasped silently, and I said, OK, perhaps another time. And I called on the next person. And fortunately, that young man said yes. But by the end of that hour, something interesting really happened. Benita raised her hand, and she said, I want to read now. And so I said, without much fanfare, sure. And she read. And I'll never forget those moments and how much my students continue to help me refine my notions of teaching and learning throughout my career. So what did Benita and countless other students help me understand? The importance of focusing on learning and not teaching. Linda uh, Donningham and I used to joke when we were in meetings in Washington that nobody ever talked about the L word, that learning was really not part of these conversations. So, so much of my work has been about learning and how robust notions of learning really help us become good teachers. And that means focusing on big ideas that are substantive and have consequence, not, not like reading aloud to perform, performing competence in ways that do not matter to learning. I also learned that serious intellectual work and, and relations are profoundly intertwined, that the, way, the social organization of the environment that I was creating for Bonita and other students was instrumental in the possibilities for learning that were to ensue. It also taught me about the importance of, of knowing who, my, who our students are and about how we organize learning. Too much of learning that I've seen when it comes to both literacy instruction and to the development of literacy and learning for English learners is organized around what David Bloom calls procedural display. It looks like learning, it sounds like learning, but it's not. At least it's not the deep kind of meaningful learning that we're all committed to promoting in our classrooms, at the university, and in public education. So I've, I've been examining this notion of procedural display, and the very best example that I could bring to display this to you was a clip that I found from Saturday Night Live an old clip with Alec Baldwin, who, as Monsieur Norbeck, 
is a French teacher, a high school French teacher. And Mr. Nobeck was not consumed with helping his students learn to teach French, I mean, to, to learn to speak French. Instead, his goal was to help his students learn to sound Frenchy. Répondez. Je m'appelle. Je m'appelle Robert. 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 Et quel jour est-il aujourd'hui? I gotta go to the bathroom. En français. Je gotta go. Je voudrais. Je voudrais. Je voudrais aller à la salle de bain. 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 I gotta make a phone call. Qu'est-ce que c'est? I... En français. J, J, J. Je voudrais. Je voudrais. Je voudrais téléphoner pour coup de fil. Je voudrais téléphoner. Je voudrais téléphoner pour coup de fil. J'ai blublé. Téléphoner. Et où est la bibliothèque? Monsieur Briand! Oh, man, I'm sorry. I swear, I was at the nurse. Because I had to sign up for this. Ah, en français! Je suis allé voir l'infirmière parce que je pense faire une demande. Tu l'as pas dit à vous? Tu l'as pas dit à vous? This is procedural display at its best. And unfortunately, it really does look like, like a lot of language learning that we find. This clip is it's much longer and hysterical. It shows Monsieur Norbert going to France after this, and he's walking around trying to find the Musée d'Orsay, and he asks some Parisians for some directions, and they start to answer him, but they're not doing it in this Frenchy, imagine Frenchy way. And so he corrects them, and then they beat the hell out of him after that. So it's really funny, right? So unfortunately, what we see here in this, in this hyperbolic case, right, of, of learning is that there are some synthetic forms of learning that are taking place in classrooms that look like learning is taking place, but instead produces what Wagenstein has called synthetic stupidity, right? In other words, it's, it is not something that's germane to the students and their ability. It's a kind of stupidity that we have produced. It's a cultural artifact of education, right? And so it, 
And so what's ironic, especially in terms of English learners, is that when we think about the social organization of this, when we know that the, the importance of oral language development in, in a whole host of literacy skills of work, um, this kind of synthetic stupidity really has implications on so many different levels for teachers and students. And it also suggests to us that we really don't know who our students are. And I want to take a minute, and this does come from the recommendations that, um, that I alluded to earlier that Kenji has helped produce, and that is that when we look at the accountability and the assessment practices going on right now, right, that we tend to um, homogenize dual language learners um, in ways that are neither productive in terms of instruction, in terms of learning, and in terms of assessment. So let me just focus for a second on young dual language learners and think about the labels that we use um, both in policy and in practice that marginalize and flatten out important differences. And I'm going to draw just for a second on an article. There's going to be a whole ER issue, ed researcher issue, and we contributed one on dual language learners. Um, and how federal policy seems to flatten out differences that matter and make it easier to promote one-size-fits-all approaches to English learners, what, what, what I call the sameness as fairness principle. So consider that children who are learning English are often characterized in ways that do not capture their linguistic repertoires. They re are referred to as limited English proficient students or English learners, defining this group of children by a single feature, their proficiency in English. By the way, our colleague Louis Small has a great one. He said we should add to it. We need to have a label for people who don't know a second language and call them limited to English. Right. <laughs> Young learners who are acquiring two languages simultaneously or who, are, or who are developing their primary language as they learn a second language are better understood as dual language learners. So I think that the way we talk about our students really kind of indexes the kinds of expectations and theories of, of, of development that we hold for these student populations. So labels do matter and interestingly enough just challenging the federal government to go from LAP to EL. DLL will be a revolution that we would take but it has been really important to kind of challenge these these ideas because what happens is that in homogenizing this population, we forget how diverse English learners and the communities from which they come are. I mean, just witness what just happened in Arizona as an example. DLLs are a diverse group, yet one of the most common misconceptions is that all dual language learners are immigrants. Nearly four-fifths of children in immigrant families are U.S. citizens by birth. DLLs are highly variable in terms of their social economic status, first language practices, and experiences with literacy. Thus, meaningful statements about intergroup comparability between DLLs and monolinguals must do more than rely on simple comparisons and generalizations. They must account for the variability. Often, of, often conceptions of these learners, their home practices, and their histories of involvement with literacy, differences that matter, are so flattened out that they become meaningless for developing policy and practice. Despite limited empirical evidence, there is a tendency to extrapolate implications 
for the education of dual language learners based on a broader population of children. Moreover, studies of older DLLs or monolingual English-speaking children service as the basis for developing and drawing implications for policies and practices. And this was the main argument of our ER piece, that if you look at the latest study, the National Early Literacy Panel Report, um, it, it had huge implications for instruction and policies around young English learners, and yet there was virtually um, little empirical basis for making some of the claims. So it's kind of a universalist principle, right? If it works for these kids, it must therefore work for these kids. And we need to demand that the kinds of policies that are developed that have implications for teaching and learning be grounded in evidence just like we would for any other student population, right? So one of the things to challenge some of these notions about the homogenization of dual language learners, and I won't go through all these, and these come from our recommendations as well, is that we need to account for the developmental nature. We know the developmental nature of language learning in general, and certainly this is important for dual language learners, that developing language proficiency happens along in a continuum, right? And the biggest duh is that students' English proficiency influences her ability to learn content and to demonstrate what she's learned in assessments in English. That is so fundamental, and yet it is the principle that is most violated. So I want to talk about some first order principles that will get us back to the kind of robust teaching and learning that I think um, English learners deserve. One is to challenge kind of inoculation theories of learning, whether it's literacy or math, or even teacher preparation. And if you just look at federal policy, we've had reading first that was first to third grade, or we might have struggling readers. So we always think of literacy as something that we can give someone, inoculate them, if they just learn decoding, they've been inoculated for literacy, right? And these inoculation kind of versions of learning, right, um, belie the developmental demands that language and literacy learning um, uh, are, are part of our whole lifetime. So that when I'm going to, as a fourth grader, even though I've learned some set of literacy skills, I'm introduced to new genres Right? new ways of interacting and thinking about text, so that we need to think about language and literacy learning as having a, a lifetime set of new developmental demands that both teachers and students must negotiate and that we must scaffold across, across these, these different challenges, right? Rather than thinking that literacy learning and language learning occurs in one period of our life and doesn't. And the same thing holds true for teacher preparation. Uh, over and over, especially at the federal level, we hear about how teachers who were prepared failed when they went to schools. Again, as if the set of tools that you get in teacher preparation are supposed to generalize to very specific contexts and, and very different kinds of developmental demands that teachers experience. So we need to challenge this kind of inoculation approach to thinking about teaching and learning. We need to replace remediation with what I call in my work, re-mediation. So let me show you what that looks, oops, 
I guess I'm not going to do it right away. The basic notion here that I will elaborate shortly is that for fiscal reasons alone, we should abandon remedial education. We know that students who have been in remedial education all their life have one common experience. They become really good remedial students. So I'm going to introduce you shortly to the concept of re-hyphen mediation. If you just look at what that, those terms mean, mediate means to come in between. It, to remediate means to change the whole functional system. It doesn't mean to put you back in the same thing over and over until you're ready to die, right? Remediation means something fundamentally different, and I want to introduce that concept to you. We need to equip teachers with powerful theories in which they really understand the profound relationship between language, literacy, culture, and human development. We need to use sites of innovation as the places for teacher preparation. A lot of that innovation is happening on the margins, in after-school clubs, in um, experimental classrooms, et cetera. Those need to be the sites where teachers can start to develop a different kind of pedagogical imagination that is very difficult um, in traditional classrooms that become black boxes in terms of imagination and potential. And we need to assist teachers with tools for developing a different set of evidence-based understandings about teacher learn student learning. So I hope I can get through all of that. It also involves escaping what my colleague uh, Iria Ingestrom calls the encapsulation of schooling. Because schooling is supposed to be a context of discovery, of imagination, of, of being able to fail multiple times to understand things deeply. It involves a context of application that is situated in, in um, context of meaning and importance. So I want to actually ask you to engage in an experiment right now with me that illustrates the encapsulation of schooling. So in one minute, I want you to, with your partner next to you, see if you can answer this question. What is the reason for the fact that at times only part of the moon is visible, or it is not visible at all, even though the sky is cloudless? In other words, what causes the different phases of the moon? Students, you have a minute. The most common answer, and this was done by my Finnish colleagues, among both young and older students, was that the moon is regularly covered by the shadow of the earth, which causes a new moon. How many of you said that? <laughs> well, students, this is actually a fairly accurate description of a relatively uncommon event, the lunar eclipse. <laughs> and is a completely incorrect explanation of the regular phenomenon of the new moon. Clearly, the same mechanism of the shadow of the Earth cannot account for both the lunar and the new moon. So what's the answer? You always want, you always want to know the answer. The phases of the moon goes through, the, goes through are caused by two things. The moon revolving around the Earth and the moon reflecting sunlight towards the Earth. Half of the moon is always lit, not just in the portion we see. However, sometimes we only see a profile of the lit portion of the moon. Certain phases of the moon result depending on its orbit, etc. Right? So what's happening in schooling is that we treat the, the moon um, and the lunar eclipse as if they are absolutely distinct or discrete, uh, discrete tasks. And so what happens is that the, that knowledge compartmentalization occurs. 
So instruction needs to or be organized, right, um, for the synthesis and relationship of big ideas, of important conceptual information. This is a lot of really robust concept formation that is really central to the acquisition of disciplinary knowledge. This is a radically different way of ensuring that students develop deep understanding of the principles, concepts, and ideas that are central to the disciplines we teach. Using the science case, it is easy to understand how knowledge can become fragmented and alienated from reality and can alienate students from learning. High quality teaching is not about the teaching of fragments. So in, in our own work, what we've done is, of course, take this idea and know from lots of work in social cultural theory that we have to start with, from the abstract to the concrete. A better way of saying that is that we start with big ideas that grow into facts, the details and personal history, right? So a more robust science of learning in general is that everyday concepts that students bring in and school-based concepts are really not, everyday concepts are not a bridge to school-based concepts. Instead, we say that scientific or school-based concepts grow down into everyday practices. And this requires, requires some negotiation of what students know and what school is teaching and a kind of hybridization that occurs in which deep learning results. So to, to really escape this kind of encapsulation of schooling, especially for students from non-dominant communities and English learners, I think requires a new kind of pedagog pedagogical imagination that's organized around more expansive notions of learning, the elimination of remedial instruction, and what I call syncretic approaches to learning, which I'm going to illustrate shortly, and policies like the ones we've inserted in your uh, folder that really support rigor, robust instructional practices, and meaningful learning. Part of challenging the dichotomy of everyday in school practices has to do, and this is a very quick little kind of a science of learning uh, review, is that in schools we tend to privilege what we call vertical forms of learning or expertise. And they're usually the kinds of expertise that are developed along a continuum, from novice to expert, from immature to mature, and that's the kind of learning that schools value, to go from not knowing very much to, to levels of appropriation of new knowledge, right? School-based learning privileges vertical forms of learning. And of course, vertical forms of learning are essential to learning disciplinary knowledge as well. But what has been missing in our conceptions of a robust theory of learning has, has been uh, accounting for horizontal forms of expertise, the kinds of repertoires that students develop as they move across the everyday context of their lives. We've been so focused on what students don't have, their deficits, and, and less concerned with what we should be, and that is, what is that student's history of involvement with science? What is that student's history of involvement with literacy, with mathematics, right? And so we say that horizontal forms of learning bring together everyday and school-based knowledges and really promotes a kind of interdisciplinary approach um, for learning. That's true with those of us in the academy. Um, horizontal expertise involves reaching across disciplines to bring in new theories, new tools to help us understand better. 
this is the kind of science of learning that is just critical to student learning in general, but certainly students from non-dominant communities whose repertoires of practice are rarely figured in to the ways we think about teaching and learning. So challenging the dichotomies is a really important part of designing robust environments for teachers and students, right? Instead of dichotomizing formal and informal and home and everyday, we start to think about the ways in which these, these different kinds of expertises really grow into one another in rich learning. So I want to share with you some examples of, of these design, social design experiments that are organized around kind of conceptually coherent curricula, evidence-based kind of teacher learning. They're organized around big ideas and interdisciplinary knowledge, and they're tightly woven with inquiry and practice and oriented to really rich forms of learning. My first example comes from my work with high school students from migrant farm worker backgrounds who we brought to UCLA for a month and engaged them in deep, rigorous learning from 6 in the morning until midnight. I want to add as a footnote that the Office of the President of the University of California has been tracking these students for us. We would bring 100 students every year. They'd all apply to college depending on their immigration status. Half of them half to 75% would apply to the University of California, and 87% of them would get admitted, most of them to Berkeley and then to UCLA. And I used to promise them if they got into UCLA, they'd have a job in my office. So I have, still have lots of people working in there who have matriculated to UCLA. So let me tell you how, how these notions that I've been talking about helped us develop a really robust, robust science model. I would hire first-year medical students who were really committed to helping, using their knowledge to help the community, and they hadn't yet been jaded by medical school, right, their first year. And so together we would develop a really rich science curriculum around the health issues of the migrant community. So you can already see horizontal and vertical expertise at work here. It was learning science deeply, it was not just about studying science, but understanding history, social science, um, urban geography, et cetera, multi, multiple disciplines to really understand the health issues of the community. So they'd study um, the phenomenon of California agriculture and the dependence of our economy on the seasonal worker. We would have them do inventories of the health issues of their families and their communities, and then we would study their causes. And so they started to get into studying the reasons for higher mort uh, uh, mortality uh, because of the nature of their lives and the work and the diseases that they had and factors that contributed to la lack of wellness. Those students engaged in some of the most unbelievable forms of scientific inquiry. They were deeply engaged, they drew on the repertoires of practice that they had around science, but they really started to understand what science learning was about. They also started to understand because they read about the Tuskegee experiment and other kinds of um, aberrations in science about the ways that science could be enabling and constraining. These students were motivated to start to think scientifically and to engage in scientific work. It all, so to do this kind of work, it involved not putting these students who came from 
very vulnerable backgrounds, both academically and economically, not putting them in remedial classes. Remediation means immersing them in the very practices in which they were trying to develop the knowledge and dispositions. So instead of just learning discrete facts like about the, the, the phases of the moon, or learning just the tidbits of science, they were engaged in scientific practices of which they had to leverage this new school-based knowledge with the knowledge they had in the community. So remediation, right, again, allows us to really ratchet up learning in ways that traditional learning cannot. So there's some counterintuitive practices that I have just in the 10 minutes I have left to, to show you, so I'm going to do kind of a drive-by. Um, we've done this in mathematics. Very quickly, th this um, study came from um, looking at college freshmen. We've also done it in high schools, in which we found that less than 1% of the provisionally admitted students to a university ever made it to college algebra ever made it to college, 1%. And we know what a gatekeeping course college algebra is. So we went to the math department and took off the one thing that terrified them most, and that was lowering their standards. So I said, if you design me an exit exam that will maintain the rigor of your courses, will you let me teach math any way I want? They thought I was crazy, but they let us do it. So what we did was we put everybody into college algebra saturated the environment with new tools, new practices, some very fine-grained assessment of what students knew, with a lot of evaluation fit built in, right? So that even if you were in basic arithmetic, we changed the social organization of learning, you would be sitting next to someone who was in college algebra, because we wanted to create a culture of distributed expertise. Um, I've written about this elsewhere, but what I want to say in sum, is that using this kind of re-hyphen mediation approach, we were able to go from 1% of students completing college algebra in one year to 67% with a grade of C or better. In three semesters, we had 85%. And in four, we still had that 10% who really needed a different kind of instruction. So that we know that rethinking the way we mediate students' learning, the way we're organizing instruction, the ways we can bring in new tools or reframe old tools can have important consequences for student learning. So let me share with you some other counterintuitive practices from studies that we've done in our after-school clubs, in the migrant program, and in classrooms. The first one is, especially this is true in, in California, when English and the home language are both unmarked in learning environments, students will experiment more with oral and written text. Um, not just in the language with which they are familiar, but with English. So let me say that in another way. We know in this society, English is the normative language. It's unmarked, right? Having a second language is the one that's marked. Just like in this society, being male is unmarked and being female is marked. I, I have to throw that in there, right? <laughs> so what, what did we find? Right? Not, so when there isn't a consequence, when students can make mistakes with impunity, when can, they can really be meaning makers, the children and high school students in these environments produce so much more text, so much more text in their home language, but they also produce more text in academic English than they were in their classrooms 
where there are consequences for their experimentation in, in the unmarked language. So let me give you an example from um, the after-school club in which the students were engaging in assigned experiments. And this is a young English learner who chose to do his digital story about science in English in collaboration with an undergraduate from UCLA who just acted as an editorial advisor. And he chose to write about cerebral palsy because his younger brother had cerebral palsy. Can we start again? Hi, this is my baby brother, Diego. He's three years old. I want to start my storytelling by beginning when he was born. When he was born, he was premature. His brain didn't fully develop. He was the size as my mom's hand. The doctor gave him some medicine so he could move a lot and not get sick. Now he goes to therapy so he could walk, play, and eat. He's big now, and he can move a lot. I love my baby brother. The shorthand of this analysis of, of these kinds of digital stories is that students like Juan really started to want to marshal the tools of school. Um, to tell a story. And again, he did it um, because he chose to. And it had important consequences for, he, for who he was as well as a learner. I happened to go into the after-school club taking some people on tour, and I ran into Juan the week after he had finished it. And I said, Juan, I really like your story. And he said, I know. Everybody loves my story. <laughs> and he asked me for some, for some copies. But what we found, again, in these environments, that the kinds of tools and the kinds of dispositions and habits of mind and attitudes towards, this is important, the attitudes towards academic genres and academic English shifted in ways that they became tools and resources for these children to do their work. We saw the same thing with high school students. I'm gonna do this very quickly. Um, this young man was reading Enrique's journal, journey, chose to write both in Spanish and English. His choice, this was in the classroom, in a place where language was unmarked. So here's his answer to, why they came to this country, and just look at the text, and here's his answer in Spanish. So one thing that was central to the kind of work we were doing is that we separated the goal of learning English, which is an important goal for these students, with using my full linguistic toolkit in the service of meaningful learning. We separated those two things. And when we privileged meaning making in the full toolkit, here's the kinds of products that we had in which children not only wrote more, also wanted to learn the tools of the academy as well, with very different dispositions. The last one is when, the, when academic literacy that, ha, that continues to be problematic and difficult for, for English learners to do, especially when they get into the older grades. Uh, kind of very impoverished notions, I think, of what academic literacy is. Not drawing on horizontal and vertical, by the way, to, to conceptualize academic literacy. When it was organized around what we call syncretic texts, really powerful literacies start to emerge. The context that I have here is for the migrant program that was at UCLA. So let me tell you briefly what a syncretic text is. Think back to what I said about challenging the dichotomies of everyday and school-based kind of learning. A syncretic text takes a cultural form that is well-known and valued by the community 
and pairing it with an academic genre and tools that are necessary for a success in the academy. So in this particular group of students, the testimonial was a well-known cultural genre. It's a story that you tell orally about something in, monumental, pivotal in your life. It's told to an audience and it's witnessed and co-constructed in that way, right? So it is oral language, but it's a valued genre in that community. We paired it with an academic genre like academic definition, extended definition, for example, which is necessary for developing academic kinds of texts. So what did we find? That, that the stories that were meaningful to students that they produced were, re, were rewritten in a way that had more meaning because they were marshalling the tools of the academy to tell their story. At the same time, the academic uh, texts that they were producing had more meaning because they were grounded in the everyday and meaningful experiences of their lives. So their own texts for the community were more powerful and their texts for the academy were more powerful, right? So we bring together literacy. So syncretic means, of course, bringing things together that should always be intention. Oral and academic discourse, everyday knowledge and uh, everyday genres and school-based genres. And it expands what we think academic literacy should be. It exploits that both horizontal and vertical notion that I was talking about. So let me just very quickly introduce you to one. Uh, and this is, this is typical. This is not one that I cherry-picked from, from students. Um, this is a young woman who's just, just graduating from another UC campus in engineering. She was actually trilingual. She had an ind indigenous language as her first language, then Spanish, then English. Here's her syncretic text. At 16, she got married to someone she didn't know because my grandmother, Virginia, thought that being 16 was too old. A year later, in 1987, I was born in the minuscule town of San Martin, Oaxaca. According to my mother, I was dead. But many say I was half dead. So what did they do? They wrapped me up in a blanket and tossed me until I awoke. I lived in that town for four years, and I can recall waking up to a tree branch filled with spider webs and the smell of tortillas, which we ate with either salt or bugs. I also remember taking cold showers in a gigantic room filled with frogs, as well as the day my parents took me to see the dead body of my 90-year-old grandfather. My mom said doctors and nurses visited her to taste her food. My father, on the other hand, was a devoted carpenter, who at times was randomly chosen to be the mayor of an 800-person town. Then my grandmother heard of El Norte and left. We soon followed. I arrived in California in the trunk of a car. If ever I understood the definition of confusion, it was then. I had no idea where I was and how I got there, but I was finally there, the new world. It was filled with cars, TVs, and above all, poverty. My family lived in a garage after being thrown out of my aunt's house because she felt our family was consuming her children's food. Interestingly enough, we were extremely thin, and most of her children were overweight. And then she talks about her own schooling experience in which being silent was rewarded. And she said, I'm going to kind of skip to this, um, I returned to a job of watching and learning, a job that I kept at school in my house. All I ever did was listen to everything and was told and swallowed it. This is why school was easy. I would remain quiet through classes and I would listen, and this is what teachers admired most. I memorized, and that's what people called intelligence. I wrote about my grandmother's death, and they, that's what they called good writing, so good that they gave me a medal for it. It was what Paulo Freire speaks about in the second chapter of Pedagogy of the Oppressed. 
which she had just read. Banking education, I was a piggy bank. So how did we get these students to produce such texts in such a short period of time? So we, they were engaged in, in the reading of rigorous, difficult texts, right? And, but with multiple forms of assistance at work. They had comprehension circles. They had opportunities to really talk about their understandings, to connect it to big ideas, right? To learn uh, the, a, a different set of tools to make meaning. We used theater of the oppressed. They wrote, read and wrote and talked a lot about these things. Lots of opportunities to elaborate, revise, and amend one thinking in talk, in writing, and in theater. I'm going through this very quickly, I know. Um, and to embody new concepts, big ideas, not little facts, big ideas about what they were reading. They learned to marshal social theory to narrate stories about their life and to marshal evidence from the various sources um, in which we, that we introduced them to. We also spend a lot of time preparing our teachers um, with rigorous theories of teaching and learning, language, literacy, et cetera, about the power of heterogeneity and language and hybrid practices that resulted, and this is just another study that I won't have time to elaborate, but as we were studying these classrooms, one of the things that we noted was that there was a whole different grammar at work, a very different kind of instructional conversation. It was a grammar of hope and possibility that was organized what, around what I call a pedagogical imagination. And it's a whole study that I'm going to summarize in two seconds. What we found is that there were no direct directives heard in the classroom. We never found people saying, write this, sit, do this, do that, direct directives that are very common in classrooms. Instead, the directives that we documented were all around kind of cognitive activity. They were think, imagine, consider contemplate. It was we, let's we do this and think about it. There were a lot of modals, right, that could and should and if-then kinds of constructions. Those are, if you're Vygotskians, you know that's about a zone of proximal development and future-oriented proleptic teaching, teaching for the future, right, teaching for the possibility of what people could do. Now, I know that for teacher preparation, we're not going to go tell teachers, you know, just use a lot of modals in your classroom. These are deeply implicated in theories of learning and teaching and really understanding the students' kind of toolkit very well. Um, it also meant helping teachers develop a very different way of collecting evidence for what, what was learning. And um, again, the article I gave you elaborates this more. We have been using cognitive ethnographies as a way to help teachers develop different sensibilities about teaching and learning in which they document their own learning as well as the students with whom they're working in whatever the context is. In our studies, we have found that this cognitive ethnography is the single most important mediating artifact in teacher preparation. It's a sense-making place where people can start to negotiate their feelings about the communities, these kids, the pedagogical issues, their notions of teaching and learning, it has a reflection piece that is critical. It's a sense-making tool, but it's grounded in evidence as well. And we've, we've documented over the last 15 years the shifts that students make from their first cognitive ethnography to the last. 
in courses in which they've been enrolled at the university. I wish I could say more about this, the, the power of these cognitive ethnographies and the ways that they really kind of help teachers in their own terms, with their own words, challenge their own assumptions about language learning, about English learners, uh, about pedagogy, and about learning. Um, this just summarizes the kinds, of, the kinds of activities in which these young teacher education students were involved, in which the re reflection and documentation of learning is central. So teachers, it's very clear that teachers and, and administrators and coaches need to continue to receive intense professional development to move away from this inoculation theory. I took an English learner course and now I'm ready for it. I need to continue to understand about language and literacy learning and what that means in terms of content instruction. Uh, we know that teachers should understand about that EL should be assessed for placement and, and <clears throat> regularly so that we can identify the needs that they have. We know about the importance of parents involved in the teaching and learning process. I worked with MALDEF on a teacher learning thing, and I asked Antonia Hernandez, who was president of MALDEF then, Antonia, what is it that you want for these parents? And she said, Chris, I want them to become obnoxious middle-class mothers just like we are because we know how to mediate the schooling experience. We know that English learners develop need to have equivalent quality of materials and components in their home language or whatever the language is, Spanish or other, as well as English at appropriate grade level. Without these things, we know that the deep learning that I've been arguing about will not happen. My time is ending, so I just want to end as I've done this very quick drive-by with the words of a wise migrant student who exemplifies what's possible when we start to develop a different pedagogical imagination with new tools for teaching and learning. This young man just graduated from Berkeley, by the way, and is now going to graduate school this coming year. For those of you who are limited to English, let me translate. <laughs> he says, <clears throat> The years passed and I got used to being in the United States and then in, in June of 2004 I had a great opportunity. I had the opportunity to come to MSLA, which is our program, in which I began to discover the significance of the light that I saw deep in my father's eyes when he asked me if I wanted to come to the program. That light signified um, a new life that I'm about to begin. I wish to help my parents and my goal is that my parents and my brothers and sisters be proud of me and that I be the first one to graduate from the university. And then he switches on his own. Also, the MSLI helped me to understand who I am. I am a hardworking student. I am my parents' hope. I am a person who has a goal. I am a story to be written. And the most important thing, I am a hard worker's son. Finally, I am the author of my life, and I will live to write the successes of my life. The story will continue. Thank you. Thank you for speaking, Dr. Gutierrez. I really got a lot out of your presentation. I think the most interesting part for me was um, when you spoke about syncretic texts. And um, as a first year, first grade teacher, I'm not um, that exposed to the different cultures and their different um, texts. So I was wondering if you had some resources or something they could email out to us, like different cultures, what kinds of 
Right. Resources. Well, that's a good question because the one thing we don't want to do is to fall back into reductive traps about you know com confusing culture with race and ethnicity, right? I mean that's a really that's that's something I didn't get to talk about, which is really central to the development of teachers. Is was when we start to understand and disentangle those two things from the, the cultural practices are very different from race and ethnicity, right? So that moves us away from statements and understandings like my Latino children learn this way, or my African-American children learn this way, right? Because those learning style things are really grounded in kind of very narrow notions and conceptions of culture and learning. So we want to move away from what uh, my colleague Fred Erickson said, oh, you mean the 100% piñata rule? And that is to remember that 100% of Mexicans don't hit piñatas 100% of the time. That as teachers, we have to always account for regularity and variance. So if I don't know my students, I'm, I'm going to be careful not to say, oh, I have all Latinos here, I have all Asian students, but to really kind of understand for my classroom, what is the history of involvement with text and literacy and math that my students bring? From that knowledge to develop a kind of everyday form that I can combine with academic literacy, right? So we happen to know this community very well, this migrant community, where they came from. So we could, with confidence, talk about the testimonio as a cultural form that was well-known and valued. But that, this, that comes with a long history of knowing that community. So as a beginning teacher, what that says to me is that how do I best understand what, what, are, the, what are the repertoires that my students bring into the classroom? Um, and how to leverage, then my job is to help leverage those. I mean, even if as a kindergarten teacher, if you put the sign-in sheet for your kids every day and you observe that, if you become a teacher with, that develops an ethnographic eye, right, if you were just to put a sh the sign-up sheet and look at who can sign the sheet, who needs help, who, who is resisting it, I mean, you start to get some sense about his students' familiarity with particular practices and not, right? So I think developing syncretic texts needs, needs you to also have an ethnographic eye so that you're deeply connected and understanding the kinds of practices that your children will bring to the classroom. has a positive sound to it. Secondly, how would we begin to motivate teachers to embrace your way of thinking and staff develop them right. at the high school level? Well, I don't think there's a way. <laughs> um, I, I think what's been very successful for us, especially in two things, using this, these innovative programs as sites for teacher learning has been fundamental. Because what it is, is often in teacher preparation, the context in which they're developing is not isomorphic to the principles that they've been learning, right? So these designed experiments are really important because they help mirror in some way the very principles that are, uh, the people are learning. So I think that that has, that has been one of the key things, to make sure that these designed environments become opportunities to make sense of the kinds of tools that they're appropriating over here, including the theories. So the, the environments that I showed you will, were all organized around the very theories of, culture, of teaching and learning that they were studying in the classroom. So I think that kind of isomorphism is fundamental to teacher preparation.
fundamental. So for example, the teachers who were in the after school club, I didn't let them go to the classroom first. I made a deal with teacher prep and I said, can I have them before they've taken one teacher ed course? And so they worked with me in this other environment using the cognitive ethnographies. And then I asked them what to follow the children back into the traditional classroom. And the fundamental orienting question was, what is it about the way learning is organized here and here that enables and constrains teaching and learning? That was the kind of sensibility I wanted. And in following those teachers, not one of them ever, ever asked that we you know about classroom management or about what to do on Monday morning, right? So that was fundamental to them. But I also think we've spent a lot of time giving them more robust models of theories of learning um, and, and, and the mediated praxis that they needed to make sense of them. Otherwise, theory's just off the shelf. And the fundamental question for me that I think, at least in teacher preparation programs that I've been involved in, one of our failings is that one of the first order questions should be, uh, conversations that goes across their experience should be, how do I reconcile what I'm learning here with the context for teaching that I'm going to be part of? Because that's, those are going to be contradictions. And we need to prepare our teachers for those contradictions. Right? How do we talk about those contradictions and how do we mediate those contradictions given the tools that I have? I think we don't do that and then we just put them out there and all they recognize is that there's a real disconnect between what I know and what's going on here. And the, la oh, the la very last thing is to, um, I don't start with talking about um, multiculturalism or food fund and festivals or that sort of thing. I really believe in starting with what culture is and um, developing really robust notions of culture that are tied to powerful theories of learning and development. And in doing that, it really opens up opportunities for people to challenge assumptions about race, ethnicity, language, et cetera. So that kind of backdooring, backdooring it really works much better for me and seems to connect with the students. I know I have one of my former students in the audience, so she can, she can tell you in secret if it really works. So. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.